Well, as I said, you can turn over to First Thessalonians chapter four, chapter four, and uh, we began uh, chapter four last week, and we saw how the apostle Paul was not only pleased with the Thessalonians and these new believers and their the progress they've made in their spiritual growth. He was very pleased with them. He had a good report back from Timothy. Uh, But now he also wanted them to understand, as we looked at last week, that they were expected to even do more. (laughs) It never ends. The progress was to continue. And this morning, I think all of us would admit that sometimes we struggle with um, growing complacent in our Christian lives. We think somehow we've arrived at a plateau, and uh, sometimes we believe that, well, we don't have to try anymore. We begin to believe the lie that somehow we've arrived spiritually. And all we have to do is sit back in the armchair of grace and wait for the Jesus to come back. But that's far from the truth of Scripture. Uh, We're compelled, we're instructed by Paul and others throughout Scripture that we are to continue to excel, continue to grow even more and more like Christ each and every day. We never really arrive, and we never will arrive until we are in that glorified state one day. Either we die and go to be with him, or he comes and takes us with him. And we saw God's call to excel in the Christian life last week. And now Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, instructs this group of new believers in Thessalonica there that they've been saved mostly out of a pagan background. They've come out of a horrible background, most of them. And not a very religious one. And those who were out of a religious background were saved out of Judaism. And so they had all the baggage that had to deal with the law and all that. But most of them were from a pagan background. And the most important thing that Paul wanted them to understand, he wanted them to understand the will of God concerning their purity. Their purity. And so this morning we'll look at God's call to purity in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And so if you'd stand in honor of God's word, I'll read these and then we can have a seat and we'll continue in our study. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you, may, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we are told, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Father, we ask you to bless these words to our heart. Open our minds to your word. Pray that the Holy Spirit would instruct us this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Most of us throughout life probably have occasion, if not frequent occasion, of trying to discern what God's will is for our lives. That's a struggle for many people. That's probably the most common question that people ask a lot of times is, how do I know God's will for my life? Um, And sometimes 
you know, you would want God just to answer you audibly. You pray, God, should I take this job? Yep, take that job. That would be, make it easy, but he doesn't do that today. We have the completed canon of Scripture. He doesn't offer us uh, a, a direct line of audio channel so we can just hear literally the voice of God and know it's that he, he is the one instructing us. Um, a lot of times, these decisions come about jobs. They come about relationships. They come about financial things, dealing with our even our families, our children sometimes. But in our text here this morning, I want you to look at verse 3. God plainly states what his will is for each one of us who are in Christ in this very important matter of purity. There's no gray area here. There's no area for compromise. He says very clearly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for this is the will of God. I mean, if, if God could somehow... Come down out of heaven and stand before you physically and say, you know what, Steve, this is my will for you. I think I would listen. I think I would be tuned in. And he says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your purity, your holiness is the word, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There's no ambiguity here. There's no gray area There's no area of, well, this doesn't hurt anybody else. No, God wants us, his desire for us as individuals in Christ is to be morally pure. Now, lest you think that somehow we can arrive at that. You know, I heard a believer one time tell me, oh, I don't, I don't, that stuff doesn't bother me at all as a man. I've, I've, I matured over that. And I said, you know what? I think you're lying to me. I don't believe you. Because God created us with certain desires. God created us with certain interests. Plus, you add the fallen nature to that. All you have to do is look around in our world today. It's easy to sin. It's easy to become morally impure if you so desire. So he doesn't... The thing you need to understand, God doesn't command our purity, our moral purity to deprive us of all the fun that the world is having. That's not why he does it. In our fallen nature, we look at that. Sometimes we look back and say, man, I just wasn't a Christian. I could go do all these things. And, you know, if we want to be very transparent, Satan has created sin to be attractive, hasn't he? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves and our deepest soul we would say, you know what? There's a lot of sins out there in the world that are very attractive to me, even as a Christian. And so it's easy to say, well, God's trying to ruin the party here. No, he's, he's trying to increase our ultimate pleasure in him without sin. In Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Think about that. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, the world takes things like sexuality and it says, oh, this is, this is fun. This is pleasurable. Just get involved in all this stuff that God restricts us from and you'll really enjoy it. No, the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says at his right hand, at God who is holy, at his right hand are pleasures forever. And he designed sexual intimacy, 
and pleasure to be enjoyed within the sanctity of marriage. So any violation of moral purity, we can say it right here this morning very dogmatically, very authoritatively, not based on my authority, but based on the authority of the word of God, that goes against any moral purity that goes against God's good and perfect will for your life is a violation of God's law, a violation of God's word. Any form of sexual immorality will hurt God's name. It will hurt you as an individual. It will hurt others. And God is the one who created intimacy for us to enjoy within the confines of marriage. And God tells us both in his word, both how that relationship can bless us and how it can harm us. His clearly stated will is that we abstain, he says, from sexual immorality. See, the good thing about reading and studying through the scriptures, and, and as a pastor preaching through the scriptures, through books, and you know you know, we were in the verse two verses last week, and you know, okay, pastor's probably going to be in the next several verses the next couple weeks. You read ahead and you see that. What would you think of this morning? I said, okay, well, we're going to pick up in verse 9. Most of you say, hey, uh, wait a minute, what about verses 3 to 8? Well, I, I, I just don't feel comfortable talking about that. That's kind of personal, so we're going to move on to verse 9. As a matter of fact, that's kind of personal too, so we're going to move on to the coming of the Lord, verse 13. We'll just forget the first couple chapter, verses there of, of chapter 4. No, you would say, hey, hold on here, pal. You, you, you promised to teach us through the Scripture. Let's learn through the Scripture. So as uncomfortable as some of this may be this morning, uh, it is for our spiritual edification that we endeavor to embrace this text. You know, when I was younger, in my teenage years, it was harder to come by things in my life that would uh, be dishonoring to God. Images and, you know, all those kind of things. Today, I feel so sorry for our young people. Because literally, it's all around us. And it seems like for a while the screens became bigger and bigger and bigger, but now they're becoming smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where you could go like this and watch a movie on your, on your wrist. And Satan knows that, and so he, he adjusts his tactics. And you, know, you may not have to go to the local liquor store and look behind the counter and see all the girly magazines anymore. They're, they're widely available on your electronic device with little or no walls there. It's very obvious that we live in a fallen world, and God wants us to be vigilant to, to put a kind of a guard over our eyes because today, for men and women, Sexual temptation is more readily acceptable than it's ever been in any time in history. Now, back then, they had a tough time. Their culture was not some purified uh, version of what we have today. It was worse. And so, you know, the invention of the smartphone and the iPad and all these wrist, even uh, computers on your wrist, um, affects us. 
But that doesn't give an, ex- an excuse. God doesn't say, oh, okay, well, you know what? You live in a different age. You, go ahead. And, you, you can, it doesn't matter if you watch that stuff. No. This still stands. It's, he still says, this is the will of God for you, that you, your sanctification, that you may abstain from sexual immorality. And we have a huge problem with sexual immorality in the evangelical church today. It's all over the place. And it's not just a man thing. Women deal with the same issues. It's a huge problem. I'm reminded of the movie Apollo 13. Did you ever see that movie? Houston, we got a problem, right? That's, that's what we, we have to understand And so did the Thessalonians. They had a problem. They didn't have internet. They didn't have phones and all that stuff. But they did live in a very sexual, promiscuous promiscuous culture. And they had the goddess Aphrodite, who was one of their most popular deities in Thessalonica. And it was a symbol, basically, and a statement of sexual license. And they were able to patronized prostitutes, and as part of this worship, it just was part of the thing that they did. Men could either go into the the pagan temples, the idol-worshiping places, and commit immorality with the priestess as an act of religious devotion. They thought, really, in their mind, this made them more committed to their pagan god. Um, Various forms of extramarital intimacy or sex were tolerated and they were even encouraged. One commentator, F.F. Bruce, writes this. He says, a man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine. While casual gratifications were readily available from a harlot, the functions of his wife was to manage his household and be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs and this was just license this is what they did it was kind of no no holds barred and so sexual sin for the Thessalonians here in Thessalonica was more customary and it was more tolerated I would say even then in our day and age today that's hard to believe but that's what the culture tells us and that gives a clearer perspective of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, he, he and Silas and Timothy, they planted this church there. They rescued people. God rescued people out of this, you could call it a pornographic society, really, that they had going on. And a lot of these new converts who had lived in immorality most of their life, no doubt a lot of these men had mistresses and, and many of the women had engaged in this kind of harlotry. And now all of a sudden they're new in Christ, they're saved. Well, what happens to them? And they have this sudden entrance into the kingdom of God. And it required the the Thessalonians to to break with their pagan background. You know, a lot of us were saved out of some form of background. Maybe it was a religious background. I was raised as a Roman Catholic, a religious person. as an altar boy and all that stuff. But it wasn't until I came to understand who Christ was and understand my need for a Savior when I was 19 that I committed my life to Christ. That's when I was saved. And I I never forget how bitter I was against the Roman Catholic Church. 
I thought, man, any of those years, I could have died and gone to hell. And yet here I was serving as an altar boy and going to confession and going to the priest for communion, all this stuff, thinking somehow I'm earning my way to heaven. And then you hear the horror stories of, of the sexual promiscuity even within the priesthood. What a horrible thing. And I remember when I got saved, I just didn't go back to the Catholic Church. I didn't go back into that environment. If you do any study on Roman Catholicism, it's very much a pagan religion. That's hard for us to hear today. That's hard for us to understand because I'm not saying every Catholic is is a non-believer. There are some Catholics who are believers. But I think if you're a genuine believer, you're not going to stay in that, that muck and that mire very long because you're not, you're not going to be doing what God would honor God. God calls us apart from those things. It'd be like being an alcoholic or being a drug addict before you get saved and you get saved and you say, well, I'm still going down the corner and hang with my buddies who are dealing drugs. I'm going to try not to partake, but even if I do, God will understand. Or if you're an alcoholic, well, I'm still going to go to the bar and hang out with my buddies before I got saved. That would be stupid. That would be silly. That wouldn't be practical. And the same thing with the Thessalonians. They, they basically, Thessalonians, they, they went and they, they broke away from all this pagan sexual immorality. Now they're a new creature in Christ. And Paul really spent a lot of time, I'm sure, instructing them on who they were in Christ. And Paul, as their pastor, was concerned enough to bring up this exhortation in the epistle here, regarding immoral conduct. Now remember, he has praised them over and over again for their spiritual growth. And so I don't know if he got a tip that maybe some of this was happening there. Some of these people were, were questioning, were kind of uh, a little slow in their, their commitment to Christ and thought maybe they'd dabble back into their pagan background. I don't know what it was. That or he was just... He realized how hard it was himself. And so he wanted to double down and really explain to them and presented them with this strong challenge. And the challenge is basically old habits and pressures from a wicked culture would seek to draw them back into that. You know, that's like when someone comes to Christ, what do we recommend? We recommend, you know what? Spend time with your church family. Come to church. Be instructed. Spend time together. And I get it, you have a burden for your lost friends and you want to be an impact there, but I guarantee you, almost without, with, without missing one, if you do that immediately, before you've matured in your relationship with Christ, before you've grown in your relationship with Christ, you're going to find yourself back into the same practices and the same participating in the same immoral things you were before you were a Christian. Except now you have the Holy Spirit. So there's that conviction on your life, right? It's not fun anymore. And we've all probably gone there at times, to some degree or another, even as a believer. And we've had to go to God and seek forgiveness and the forgiveness of others as well. But here Paul doesn't kind of comfort his words. He doesn't pat his words. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Through the surrounding, you know, even though in the day and age we live in this, this morally perverse society, it continues to lower its moral standards. The same thing was happening to them. And Paul was saying, you know what? You have no excuse to lower yours. And nor do we. 
I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, we live in one of the most liberal places in the world, really, in this, this Bay Area. So, you know, it's easy to compromise. Well, Paul's saying don't. That's not an excuse. Paul's requirement that the Thessalonian believers abstain from sexual sin did not involve this relative morality of the culture. It was an absolute standard. This wasn't optional. And nor is it optional for us today. Uh, Paul's commandments for sexual purity were just as countercultural in his day as they are in ours. When you meet with a young couple who's yet to be married and, and you're talking to them about you know, possibly getting married and, 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 you, and you ask them, well, you know, what's your relationship right now? A lot of times the answer is, oh, we're living together in an immoral way. That's not good. That's not good. And so we have to be careful about that. And his message is really crystal clear. Avoid this as much as you can. And so God's will for his people is to be sexually pure by knowing him and the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's look at the first point here. God's will for his people is to be sexually pure or holy, holy, set apart. Uh, This is the word he uses here. He zeroes in on, on the need for sexual purity or sexual holiness. What does that mean? Holiness means to be set apart unto God. It was God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the word here is sanctification. Hagiasmos is is the Greek word. And it's the process of being separated from sin. It's not a once deal. It's not like you get saved and you're, you're removed from the practice of sin for the rest of your life. That doesn't work that way. It means it's an ongoing process. Our holiness is continuous. To be holy is to be set apart from this evil world onto God. And he repeats this three times for our emphasis in verses 3, also in verse 4, and then also in verse 7. In 7, he links sanctification with our, sal- our salvation. He says, for God has not called us for impurity, but what? But in holiness. But in holiness. God's calling here refers to his effectual call to salvation. That's how we're saved. If there's no effectual call, we can't be saved. Dead people can't raise themselves from the dead. It takes the power of God. So he took the initiative here to rescue us from his judgment, from his wrath, How? By sending his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear the penalty for our sin that we deserve. We deserved the penalty that Jesus received on our behalf. And by now, having been bought by the precious blood of Christ, God commands us as his children to be holy, even as he is holy. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 to 13, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There it is. Don't be caught up with what you were before Christ. Verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy or set apart in all your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The Bible uses this word holy or sanctification, sanctify, in three different ways. And I've listed them there for you, um, I think, in your outline. Every believer, first of all, is positional sanctification. Every believer is set apart onto Christ. Every believer is set apart onto Christ. This is what we call, this is your position in Christ. If you don't know what your position in Christ is today, here as a believer, I would pray that you would begin to understand it. Read the first three chapters of Ephesians. It will tell you very clearly what your position is in Christ. Because you're not the same if you've come to Christ. You're different. Your position's different. Before you were under God's wrath, you were under God's judgment. But now, you are not there anymore. You're not an object of his wrath. You're not an object of his judgment. Yes, thank you, God. Amen. Positional sanctification is your position in Christ. Every believer is set apart positionally in Christ. It tells us so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified. Same word, in Jesus Christ, called to be saints. That's what saint is, is one who's called out separated, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Or in 1 Corinthians six eleven, Paul writes, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were, the word is sanctified, you were made holy, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Or in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. This is a beautiful verse to understand. He says, for by a single offering, one offering, he, God, has perfected for all those, for all time, those who are being sanctified. See, that's why we don't need to have a list of, oh, here, what do you need to be saved? What do you have to do? Well, you have to come to church. Oh, you have to become a church member, and then you have to give money to the church, and then you have to pray, and then you have to go to the Bible studies, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. No, no, no. It says right there, for by a single offering, one offering, he has perfected us. And that offering was the Lord Jesus Christ, his own son on the cross. And if you look at the cross and you say, yes, I need the forgiveness of Christ, I want to turn away from my sin, and I want to turn to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to believe that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for my sin. God, give me the faith to believe that. I want to apply that. I want to be set apart onto you, Lord. God will answer that prayer. He will save you even here this morning. So there's a positional sanctification. He will take you from the the kingdom of the darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. But there's a second aspect of sanctification. It's called progressive sanctification. Progressive. They all start with P. Positional, progressive, perfect. Progressive sanctification. And this is a process that happens every day. When does positional sanctification happen? The moment you put your faith, your trust in Christ. Your, your identity is changed forever, for all eternity. You are removed from under God's wrath, and you were put under his favor based on Christ, not on anything you've done. All you did was listen to the gospel and respond affirmatively. 
and say, yes, this is something that I want. This is something that I want to commit my life to. That changes your position. But the sanctification of progress, progressive sanctification, is this process by which every day we become more holy and more like Christ each and every day. It was explained to us back when I read 1 Peter 14 and 16 of chapter 1. He says, be holy. Don't be conformed. Don't give in to all these passions that are they're raging in your fallen nature and your body and all that stuff. No, be transformed. Fix your heart, your mind on, on something that's holy. That's progressive sanctification. And this will continue until the day we come to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in person, whether we die or he comes back for us. We will be in this process. And you say, well, why did God make it a process? Why didn't God just make us completely holy so where we could live out the rest of our lives here on earth and not even have to deal with sin at all? I mean, wouldn't you like that? I would. Think about it. If you could live in this sinful world without ever sinning in any way, not even being tempted to sin, what a wonderful thing that would be. But I think part, part of us would think that somehow, wow, I'm pretty good. I've kind of arrived. You know, I can't believe these stupid non-Christians are still out there sinning before a holy God. Look at me. Our pride would just well up inside us, right? So God said, no, I'm not going to do that. Could he have? Yes, but he's not going to. So he doesn't just snap his fingers and all of a sudden, you know, we're walking on water and we're perfect. No, he says, you know what? This is something you're going to have to struggle with now for the rest of your life. As a matter of fact, it's great news when you come to know Christ But there's also a tinge of reality there too. And you have to explain that to new believers. Because new believers come to Christ and they think, wow, this is just wonderful. Everything's great. My sin is washed away. I'm, I'm, you know, pure as the wind-driven snow. And then they end up in your office a week later going, man, pastor, I really messed up this last week. What's going on? I don't think I'm saved. And they start to question their own salvation. And they begin to look at their performance. And even though positionally they are in Christ, they have to understand that their sanctification, their holiness, comes as through a process. God continues to chip away at us. He continues to refine us. He continues to make us more like Christ. Here in this earth, we never completely arrive. It's always going to be a struggle. And that struggle is given to us, just like any other trial or tribulation, to what? Keep us dependent on God. It's like when you raise your children. And uh, I, I saw a commercial the other day. It was on the news or something. I think it was on Fox News. They had this little baby. He was like a year and a half. And he had like a 24-carat binky, you know, one of those little things they suck on, in his mouth. And the mother is saying, oh, everything he gets, he wants. Whatever he wants, he gets. I just give it to him. And this little binky cost, I think it was upwards $10,000. And he's lost like three of them. I, I, pure gold. I mean, it's just crazy, right? And you think... Boy, this kid is really going to be messed up when he gets older, lady. You don't know what you're doing. And apparently she was a single mom, and she didn't have any money. So apparently she's putting out these videos, and it's providing an income for her because she's documenting her little kid, and, well, yeah, here, whatever you want. I mean, that's not, that's not parenting. That's really child endangerment in my mind. Uh, kids don't turn out well that are given things like that. 
And neither would we if God just saved us and said, oh, you don't have to worry about anything the rest of your life. Even though our salvation is secure, every day we wake up and we want to live for the Lord, hopefully. And usually there's some stumbling block in our life that causes us to have a little taste of humility once again, even though we think we arrive. That's just part of it. And this is progressive sanctification. Thirdly, not just uh, positional and progressive, but also perfect sanctification. One day... All those who know Jesus Christ will be perfectly sanctified. They will be perfectly set apart. When Jesus Christ returns, we will be, it says, like him. And any sin, any trace of sin in us whatsoever will be purified. It will be perfected. We will be pure. We will be holy as Christ is holy. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. That's our position. We are children of God. And so we are, he says. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Couldn't relate. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. I mean, you think church is great. You think getting together in Bible study and all. You think that's wonderful and you're living. That's, that's nothing. That's like the little, you know, little scratch on the surface of what we are actually going to embrace when we will see our Lord and Savior. He says, but we know that when he appears, Christ, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And then he gives this exhortation at the end of verse 3 there, 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him... Listen, purifies himself as he is pure. See, that's what? That's progressive sanctification. Positionally, we are set apart as God's children. Nothing will ever change that. But progressively, he even puts it on us here in that text in 1 John. You need to be purifying yourself. You need to have a desire to become more like Christ each and every day. I'll use this illustration because I think it depicts what this understanding is. Um, Sometimes little children, I remember when our grandkids were smaller, and sometimes maybe I'd give one of them a lollipop or something, and it'd be in the wrapper, and they'd be by themselves. But they knew the sister was coming along or the brother was going to see them with this. And they thought the one sure way to eliminate them out of any desire for this lollipop was to rip that wrapper off and just lick that lollipop as much as they could and get as much saliva on that lollipop so when the sister came, they would look, or the brother would come and go, yeah, no thanks, I don't want that. If it was still in the wrapper, they would have wanted it. But they knew. And so the children will do that with things. Maybe they have a cookie and their friend, they'll know their friend will want it while they take a bite out of it. Right? They'll, they'll take a bite out of it just to show that, hey, this is, this is what? This is now positionally sanctified. This is my cookie. Why? Because I took a bite out of it. I mean, think if you went over to the fellowship ball afterwards and you saw a piece of tri-tip sitting there, and you're oh, I think I'll try this, and you picked it up and took a bite about it, and you set it back down. That, that would not be appropriate. Everybody would say, hey, somebody left their tri-tip piece here. What's going on? You know, nobody else would come up and go, oh, I think I'll take a bite too. Why? It's already spoken for. That's positional sanctification. 
And that's the same thing kids do with candy or food. And then they begin to appropriate that lollipop. And they begin to progressively eat it and lick it until there's no more. And it will be totally consumed or conformed to her when she finishes it. It's the same thing with our our picture of positional sanctification and sanctification in general. God has called us in the sphere of sanctification, the sphere of holiness. And in verses 3 and 4, Paul is referring to our growth in holiness. But now he, he talks about daily walking with the Lord here. And so the first point there, holiness means that you're set apart unto God who has called us out of darkness into his light. Secondly, B, on the back of your outline there, holiness means abstaining from sexual immorality in the context. Immorality there is the Greek word pornea. We, we modern times, when we think of inappropriate material, they call it what? Pornography. Same word, same... It refers any kind of... Uh, Intimate relationship outside of, of male-female marriage, heterosexual marriage. It includes sex before marriage. It includes adultery. It includes the whole gamut of homosexuality and all the other odd things that people do. See, Paul is not calling us to moderation in the area of intimacy here. But he calls us to total abstinence outside of marriage. Total abstinence. He wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, turn over there, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, it's a great reminder by the Apostle Paul. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity, notice how he sums it up, sexual immorality and all impurity, or covetousness, must not even be, look, named among you. Not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That's how much you have to avoid it. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, that's the word from our text, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Jesus made it just as clear on his statement of sexual immorality, and he says basically it begins where? It begins in the heart, in the thoughts of man. It's not so much based on your performance outside. It's based on what you're thinking inside. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he told the the, uh, uh, Pharisees, well, you may not literally be sleeping with another woman who's not your wife, but you know what? Your heart, in your heart, you're committing adultery. And he convicted them in that. And that's just as bad. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 and 23, Jesus wrote this, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
He says, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, the whole idea today within the church, unfortunately, is that there's this this undue focus on spiritual warfare to the point where we blame all of our sins on, 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 the, on Satan. And we don't take ownership for it. Well, Satan made me do it. Well, no, it says right here that all these things come from where? From within. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you are perfect spiritually. You still have a body that is given to sin. Now, personally, I don't believe that you have two natures I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I think Paul makes that clear in Romans that, that the old nature is dead. There's some teachers today that teach, well, you have an old nature and a new nature, and depending on which one you feel to feed, that's the one that's going to rule and reign in your life. I don't believe that's scripturally correct. I think that would be a very, very difficult situation to put a new believer into. But even though our old nature's dead, guess what? Our old body's not. This flesh, and that's what Paul says, in my flesh, these things reside. And until we get our glorified body, we're going to have to deal with the onslaught of sin, the onslaught of temptation. And that's why it's a, it's a battle. But to win the battle, you have to control your, your, your thought life first and foremost. If you can control your thought life, either, even in a, in a, a basic way, through the teaching and through the hearing and through the memorization of Scripture, and you commit these things to memory. So when you're out there and you, you see something that's tempting, that verse pops into your head and go, well, wait a minute, this, God thinks this is sin, this is wrong. Lord, help me turn away. You know, it's not, it's not always, guys and gals, it's not always the, the first look that gets you. It's not the first glance, it's the second, it's the third, it's the fourth. Right? I mean, that's where you have to be careful. You can't completely, you'd have to live in a monastery on top of a mountain somewhere all by yourself to not be exposed. And guess what? You would still have lustful thoughts in your heart because it resides within us. But you have to be careful. You know, sometimes people have different levels, different standards. Some people who are saved out of a a very promiscuous background, they can't even watch a movie where two people kiss. It, it just brings back too much. They can't do it. Okay? Other people, they could watch a movie where there's, you know, wars and stuff like that going on, but, you know, no, no sexual promiscuity. They're good with that. Okay? But nobody should expose themselves willfully to anything that would dishonor God in this way. So you can't avoid looking at all the stuff around us, but you can't avoid a second glance. And you can immediately redirect your thoughts. Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. But to do that, thirdly, you have to have control. Holiness in the sexual realm requires self-control. Holiness means to be set apart unto God. It means abstaining from any thinks it's inappropriate here, but it also means you have to have self-control. Paul explains in verses 4 and 5 what he means by abstaining from this sexual immorality. He says that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
In other words, he's, he's drawing two pictures here. He's saying you have people that know God and there's, you have people that don't. People that know God should act differently than the people that don't. And whenever you begin to gray those areas, you have a problem. And unfortunately, because Christians today are exposed to all kinds of things, all kinds of sights and sounds and philosophies, and what that does is tempts their fallen their, 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 their fallen flesh, basically, to immoral thoughts and, and immoral actions. You have to know how to resist those temptations. I liked what John MacArthur said. He said this, Because the need was equally great for the Thessalonians, Paul gave them three timeless principles for maintaining sexual morality. The body should not control the believer, number one. Secondly, the believer should not act like an unbeliever. That's pretty basic. And then thirdly, the believer should not take advantage of others. But it's self-control. I heard this illustration of, of Pastor John. One time he was out to eat with people and the dessert menu came and they asked him, would you want any dessert? And he said, no, I'll pass. I had enough to eat. No, you know, they have great desserts here, John. Come on, get it. He said, no, I, I, really, I usually don't have dessert. And it kind of bugged the person that took him out to eat. And so the person ended up asking him privately, he said, well, you got an issue with that or something? He goes, no, he goes, it's, it's my one. He goes, not that I don't want dessert. Boy, I, I, want, I want that dessert. But it's the one way I can tell my body, you're not in control. And I thought, wow, that's good. Now, obviously, I haven't worked that out yet, but as many of us not haven't. But that takes what? It takes self-control, right? It takes discipline. I mean, when you eat something and you like it, you want another. You know, like Lay's, you can't just eat one, right? I mean, it's impossible. Well, it's the same thing even when it comes to sin and things like that. See, the explanation here Paul has given sometimes is interpreted two ways, one of two ways. Some people say there where it says he, he should control his own vessel in some translations. Um, they say that vessel refers to his wife, the wife. That, you know, they should be... And, and they put that whole view on it. That, that's not talking about controlling himself. It's controlling his wife and his relationship with his wife. Um, the second view says that the word, the word vessel there, um, or in our, our text, uh, it, it says that we should abstain. Each of you know how to control his own body. The word body refers not to the wife, but to the individual believer. I, I believe that personally. Um, I mean, I don't know how you would control someone else anyway. So I think it's, it's referring to their own, their own person. And he's exhorting not just men here, but women as well, to control our bodies. And the way to do that is to restrict any kind of this behavior to what? To a marriage relationship. That's where it belongs. Any kind of intimate uh, relations. Each believer had the same Personal responsibility, and that word know, that you should know to do this, it carries the idea of having knowledge or having skill to accomplish a goal. All right? That each of you should know how to control his own body. And you have to learn what triggers your body. You have to understand, you know what, for some people... Um, like I said, if they're addicted to alcohol or something like that, you know, they, they can't be around it. 
And that's why it's, it's very important as believers to understand that, that there are people within the church that have had, that were saved out of a background like that, whether it's drugs or alcohol, whatever. And it would be very wrong to invite someone over like that for dinner and say, oh, here, you want a glass of wine? Without understanding, you know what? I mean, there's nothing, you know, I don't think that wine, drinking wine is prevented in Scripture clearly. I mean, being drunk is. Strong drink, that's another, that's another thing altogether. But wine, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're not to cause another brother or sister to stumble. And so it's better just to, just to kind of avoid it, right? Just to avoid it. Um, every Christian needs to know himself well enough to understand his weaknesses and the evil propensities that maybe exist there for him. It doesn't mean it exists for your neighbor. That's where we, we got to stop judging everybody else. You know, and it says know how to, um, to, to kind of possess there or how to, how to control your own body. It has the idea of gaining mastery over your own body. You know what it can do. You know what it can't do. And, and God gave heterosexual marriage as a legitimate place for sexual relationships to be lived out. And, and that's where the focus needs to be. Well, secondly here, the second point, sexual sin, quickly, among God's people always causes da- damage here. And a couple points here. Sexual sin hurts God's name. That doesn't, that's not rocket science, right? Uh, if God is holy and he expects us to be holy and we're identified as his children and we're out there trying to proclaim the gospel to people, saying, hey, look at me, God has made a difference, uh, but we're engaging in something that would be immoral in God's eyes, what does it do? It drags God's holy name through the mud. That's why we're, we're called to live lives that are above reproach. Now, we want to be transparent. We don't want to be fake about this, but we also have to understand we're not perfect. None of us are. And so we, it, it, it takes a, a process of sanctification to grow us into more and more Christ-likeness. But this is unfortunately where, you know, especially in Christian leadership, when people are caught in this kind of a sin, a sexual situation, some kind of infidelity, it, it brings great harm to God's name. Secondly, sexual sin hurts the sinner himself. A lot of times we think, oh, it looks fun, it looks, you know, whatever. Um, and I don't believe, that, someone asked me, don't you think all sin is the same? No, I don't. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, flee from sexual, sexual immorality. And then he says this, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sin against his own body. Or do you not know that your body, as a believer, is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, Paul says, for you were bought with a price, so glorify, glorify God in your body. This is important for us to hear. You know, we think that we can just be saved by grace and go out there and live and let live and do whatever we want. No. We're called to be obedient in certain areas of life. Um. Romans 1, verses 24 and 20 to 27. I'm not going to read it. We don't have time. But it talks about those who engage in immorality, specifically homosexual sin. Whether you're man or woman, whatever. Uh, they dishonor their bodies. And it says they receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. In other words, there's a consequence. Can God forgive their sin? Definitely. Does God just make all the consequences go away? No. No. 
He doesn't. God's moral laws are like traffic laws. Think of it this way. You can disobey them for a while. You know, you can go up on on, uh, 280 and go 100 miles an hour if you want to. You can do it every day. I guarantee you, if you do it long enough, you're going to be looking at a fat ticket from the CHP. There's going to be consequences. Sooner or later, you're going to get a ticket. You're going to go too fast. Something's going to happen. You're going to hit a pole. You're going to harm yourself. You're going to harm other people, whatever it might be. But God's laws are designed by a wise creator who created us to protect us. To protect us. Thirdly, sexual sin hurts many others. This is easy to understand, too. He says there in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother, or you could put sister, in this matter. Um, When you have relations with someone who's outside of your marriage, the bounds of marriage, you're transgressing against that spouse, that innocent spouse. You're defrauding them. Or if it's a single woman, you're defrauding her against her future husband. The word transgress there simply means to sin against. It includes stepping over the the, the line in the sand, exceeding what's lawfully permissible. The New King James Version, I like the way they render that. They say, take advantage of. That's really what it means. You're taking advantage of someone. And when it says you would not wrong, that word means to defraud. And it's, it's, it has to do with greed. Every sexual sin is a selfish sin. It's meant to meet your own selfish gratification. You don't care who it's with, what, who else it involves. As long as your needs are met, then you think, well, that's, that's, it's, that's it. I watched a video series one time on men dealing with pornography. And in, in one of the interviews, this man was interviewing this guy who had a real addiction. And he said that, you know, I challenge you. I think the guy had three daughters. The next time you watch that stuff, think, that's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's daughter. Doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are, it's somebody's daughter. It kind of changes your perspective on all that. The glamour and the glitz has all all gone away. Um, And whenever believers seek to satisfy their own physical desires and gain any kind of pleasure at the expense of another believer, they have violated this command. Um, It's very... Serious In Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 and 7, Jesus says this, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Verse 7 says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. I mean, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, um, be careful. Don't damage your reputation in their eyes. Uh, 
because it affects them for years. You look at David's sin with Bathsheba. He paid an awful price with his family and with his, his kingdom even for one night of sinful pleasure. And so we need to make sure we understand that. Thirdly, third thing here, God will bring judgment on those who are sexually impure. You, know, you see how Paul kind of ups the ante here. He makes it basically a, a pretty basic thing here. He says, you know, you should be sexually pure. You should be pure as an individual before a holy God. And it always causes damage. But thirdly here, he says, you know what? God will bring judgment on it. Look what he says in verse 6, the end there. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. The first compelling motive Paul gave the Thessalonians for obeying this command to abstain from sexual immorality is because, you know what? If you don't, God will avenge it. God will deal with it. And only God has the right to exact vengeance for the sins people commit. We don't have that right as believers. It's none of our business. Matter of fact, we're forbidden. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for as it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then in verse 8, he even adds this warning. He says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. You turn a deaf ear to this, you're turning a deaf ear to God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. It's God who meets out judgment. It's, 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 it's very important that we understand that. And he reminds us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, very sobering portion of Scripture here. Hebrews 10, verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then he says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands there of a living God. You might be saying, well, wait, I thought as a Christian all my sins are forgiven. What, What is this talking about here? See, if a genuine Christian falls into these sins and repents, guess what? God forgives you. God forgives you. He really does. But he may not remove the consequences. As in David's example in the Old Testament. But if someone professes to be a Christian, but habitually engages in, in this kind of immorality over and over and over again, he may be deceived in his own salvation. His 
Christianity may be just that, just a, a saying, I am a Christian, that's it. Because the Bible repeatedly warns that sexual immorality will not, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And these are strong, strong warnings for us to heed. Um, a lot of Christians are miserable in their Christian life because they continue to sin, and you can't. Um, that's, that's part of what we read in 1 John 3. To reject God's clear teachings, his clear warnings, indicates when you do that, when you just reject it, you just say, you know what, I know this is what the Bible says, but I am choosing not to believe it. That's a very dangerous place to be in. It indicates that you don't know him. You know him in name only. Well, fourthly here, we'll close with this. To be sexually pure, you must know God and walk by the power of his indwelling spirit. This is kind of in addition to our our being saved and everything. He says to be sexually pure, first of all, you must know God, right? Um, He contrasts it with those Gentiles who do not know God. And so to be a true Christian means that you have come to know God through your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can take John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that what? They know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Or Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, it says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, he clarifies it. A lot of times we... We think that somehow God is lost. Well, I haven't found God yet. Well, he's not lost. He says, how can you turn again back to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world? Those slaves you want to be once more. Whose slave do you want to be once more? In other words, he's telling the Galatians, don't go back to your previous lifestyle. Don't turn back to that. You were saved. You were saved out of that. And Paul declares... Even in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus is revealed from heaven, it says he will deal in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's not good enough just to say, oh, yeah, I believe the gospel. No, we're called to obey the gospel. What does that mean? That means you leave everything and you commit your life to Christ. It's very important. Read through Romans 1. You can see all this stuff that's, that's unfolding in our society. You see it played out in Romans 1. They're trying to suppress the truth so they can do whatever they want. Secondly, to be sexually pure, you must walk by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Isn't it great that, that God gives us his Holy Spirit as a believer to dwell within us, to convict us? Literally, in the Greek construction here, it literally says, gives you his spirit, the Holy One. Galatians 5.16 says that Paul says, walk in the spirit. And guess what? You will not carry out the desires of the flesh if you walk in the spirit. If you ask the spirit of God, take control of your life, Lord, and you do this even as a believer. Every morning I wake up, man, I commit that day to the Lord. I pray, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, you take over. I don't want to do what I want to do. I don't want to think what I want to think. I don't want to say what I want to say. And it's only when I avoid that that I end up in 
trouble. And so he goes on there in that text to enumerate some of the sinful desires, which include immorality, by the way. But the Holy Spirit is God's gracious, undeserved gift to us. It helps us understand his word. It helps us commune with one another. And it gives us that conviction that we need to live a life that's holy before God. Because the Holy Spirit is holy. It's set apart. Isaiah 6.3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 1 John 1.5 says, we heard it this morning, he is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So we need to be reminded of that. And the Holy Spirit dwells within us as believers. One commentator says, The only way you ever sin is by suppressing God, by forgetting, by turning out his voice, by switching channels and listening to other voices. Because if the Holy Spirit is within you, he will lead you, he will guide you. And when we do sin, guess who it grieves? It grieves God, the Holy Spirit. Grieve is a very emotional word. God has feelings. God has emotions. And when you sin against someone who loves you, guess what? That person grieves. And to sin against the Holy Spirit, the one who sealed you for the day of redemption, is to really grieve God who gave his son to save you. And so if you're here this morning and you know the Lord... He he points out very clearly his will for us, that we abstain from any kind of impurity. And we do so by the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within us. And you know what? Maybe you're here this morning and you're defeated in this area. You've given in. You've compromised. Well, the Bible indicates that whatever you should do, you should take radical measures to get back on a, a path of purity. And, and that means maybe getting rid of that electronic device for some of you. You can't deal with it. Whatever it might be. I'm reminded if John Owen, in his book, The Temptation and Sin, he wrote this, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And, Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart for purity. Lord, help us not to to grow weary in well-doing. Help us not to use our culture, and even here in the Bay Area, just all the stuff we see around us as an excuse for our spiritual unfaithfulness to you, a holy God. Lord, I pray for each one that's gathered here this morning. I pray that you would do that work in their heart. Lord, that you would communicate to them the truth of your gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who even though he was perfect in every way, he went to the, the cross of Calvary willingly because of his love for us, and he took upon himself all of our sin completely. And he was treated as if he had committed every sin of every person who would ever believe in his name, even though he had never committed one. And he was set apart as the only sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. Everything else that was done in the Old Testament, all the, the, the lambs and everything that was sacrificed, was looking to Christ, the one sacrifice that would meet our needs. 
And so, Lord, the Bible says that there's no salvation in any other. You need to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Commit to live by his standards. You need to be willing to walk away from everything and serve him and serve him alone. Then, Jesus says, then you can follow me. Then you can be my disciple. You have to obey obey his calling for your life. As believers, I just pray that we would be encouraged today that this Holy Spirit that resides within us gives us power to defeat sin every day. And it's only when we don't fulfill our obligation to you and listen to his leading and guiding that we end up in sin. And when we do, you're so gracious to remind us that you've forgiven us of our sin and you've cleansed us from all unrighteousness. But, Lord, we pray that you would motivate us to share the gospel with those who have yet to hear. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.